Welcome to the Life Support Podcast, where we share stories about being a doctor to build community and to heal each other, even when what ails us is incurable. My name is Paul Kim, and I just finished my first year of medical school. Already I have witnessed how medical school and medical practice have just as much potential to drain our spirits as to offer fulfillment and meaning. I hope my conversation with Dr. Sulkis today will help support you in living well your current phase of becoming a physician. Thank you, Dr. Sulkis, for taking the time to talk with me. Could you say a little bit about yourself? What are you doing and how you got to that? Oh, sure. So I am a developmental behavioral pediatrician, an unusual, not very highly populated subspecialty. My path to it is one that I always think is interesting because it's my path, of course. I always knew I wanted to be a pediatrician. and I had a strong sense of that entering medical school, but I didn't know. I, I always assumed I'd do general pediatrics, and I got through my pediatric residency and had never really had many experiences with people with developmental disabilities. And I had a really good experience when I was a second-year pediatric resident where I got exposed to the world of developmental disabilities a little bit more and found that there were elements of it that appealed to me. And I still thought I was going to do develop, do general pediatrics. But then my wife, who is also a physician, was planning to do a fellowship and we were going to have to go somewhere for a few years. And I was going to have to put off opening a practice. So I figured eh, I'll do a fellowship in something that I could apply to, to general pediatrics. So developmental disabilities kind of worked for me. And I went in did, and got a fellowship with a really inspiring set of mentors who really got me enthused. And during one session, my, my main mentor, a guy named Alan Crocker, who was, who, this is going to send you to the dictionary. He embodied the word avuncular. He was like your <laughs> uncle. He was like your uncle. And Alan just, he puffed on his pipe and talked with his Boston accent and was just and he, uh, he's giving a talk to a bunch of pediatricians. He says there are you know, three ways that pediatricians interact with people with developmental disabilities. One is they just do general practice and they have some kids or, you know, with, with disabilities in their practice and they deal with them as best they can. Then there's the person who devotes like half a day a week to this and thinks you know, they're gonna consult to a school or make it kind of a focus for their practice. At this point, I was thinking that was gonna be me. I'm just entering my second year of fellowship training. And, and Alan continues at the podium that the third kind of person does a fellowship and then spends all of his or her time focusing on this population, may work for a university, may work for a state, may do some private practice, but most likely it's going to be a full-time job doing something, focusing on this population. And he looks up from the podium in front of 250 people at this CME session and says, Steve, you got to be the third kind. Okay. And, and, and he, he had me right there in front of, in front of an audience, you know, so what was I going to do? I had to do that in life. So I ended up doing it and found it to be very rewarding and great fun. And so that's how I got where I, where I am today. Well, thank you for sharing that. So yeah, I think you know the topic that I was hoping to talk a little bit about today, the concept of Meliora, seeing that we are at the University of Rochester and our motto of being ever better. I think that's a relatively complex notion, and I think different people can understand that phrase 
in a lot of different ways based on their experience. So could you tell me what strikes you about that phrase or motto? Well, it means don't get complacent about what you're doing. You know, I mean, you can get, you can always be, be always trying to improve what you do. Always try to be more thoughtful about it as, as a physician, as the person, be more thoughtful about the person in front of you and what's driving them, what's, what's motivating them, what their goals are, because our job is to help people. Our job is to serve people. And if we're not targeting what they want, then we're not doing our job as well as we can. We're doing it the way we think maybe it ought to be done, but maybe it's not the best for the person in front of us. And could you tell me about a time where you felt that you really lived that value out well? Boy, I don't know that I ever live it out well enough. I mean, that's the whole point. You never can. You always got to be doing better, right? So, I mean, I can tell you about times when I didn't do it as well as I should have. Sure. Uh, and one, it has to do with making assumptions about people. And in those days, we were very proud of how we did our interdisciplinary evaluations. Everybody, you know, we'd have five or six people, every professionals, everybody would see, see the kid. We'd do our own our own evaluation and somebody would, and we all have a meeting, we'd sit down together and one person would be appointed the coordinator chair for that session. And they'd have to take notes and, and create a summary report. And I happened to have this one kid who was 11 or 12, inner city African-American kid who had some learning disabilities, maybe some ADHD, delightful kid, really charming, great mother, single mom, deacon in her church, she was you know, a community leader, and she was making sure that this kid got all that he needed, and she was just doing really well. And when we were writing up our reports, we were choosing to do it in a strengths and weaknesses, strengths and needs kind of format, and you had to put something in every box. So one each, for each domain, you have to have some strengths and some weaknesses. And so when I wrote down about the family, I said, you know, mother providing spectacular supports, you know, wants to do best for her son. And in the needs area, I said, single parent family. And I wrote the report, sent it off to the mother. And a couple of weeks later, she calls and says, I was looking at your report. I appreciate everything you said. Thanks for all the recommendations, et cetera. She said, I have to ask you though, okay, you put single parent family in the, in the weaknesses area, in a needs area. She said, do you think my son is having problems because I'm a single parent. I mean, if, if you think that, by all means, I will you tell me what to do. I'll get him a big brother. I'll set him up for something. She said, but if it's just, if that's your opinion about based on single families, you're indicting a big hunk of my community. And I wow, said- that is, yeah. that is quite a bold and brave and, statement for her to make. And I said, bingo, ma'am, you are hundred percent right. This was a this was a boilerplate statement on my part. It bore no relationship to you. It was ignoring all the great things you're doing. You are doing a wonderful job. Forgive me. I did not. I I, I apologize to you. I was making assumptions. I was not being ever better in that situation. I was not thinking about the person. I was trying to think what to put in the box. And you know, I, I was more interested in getting that box not to be empty than I was to think about whether this kid actually had needs in that domain, and he didn't. I think after hearing that story, my mind kind of wonders, what goes through your mind when you realize you've made a mistake like that? Oh, I feel terrible. I just, I, 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 
I, well, what goes through my mind first is a rush of adrenaline because I just I feel feeling so anxious and terrible that, that I screwed up in that way with regard to a person. I mean, and, and I, I want to make it right. My first response is to run and hide. But if, I, if I'm doing my job, I say, well, no, 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 it's okay. You can just fix it right now, figure out how. And if, if, it, if it's an apology or, you know, or an explanation or whatever, try to do that. But you know, so I, I don't know. It's, uh, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge when we don't do it perfectly or when we make mistakes. I think we, we fix things much better when we don't try to cover it up or justify it. If, we, if it's a misunderstanding, clarify things. But if it's, it's a mistake that I did, I want to make it I want to make it right because I want this person to leave satisfied. Oh, yeah. I think, thank you for such an honest answer. I really appreciate you being open about, yeah, all of the different feelings that are like flying through your mind and how difficult it is sometimes to figure out what to do with which feeling and not to, as you say, kind of just run and hide. I mean, I even, I can remember this past year in some standardized patients encounters where there's like specific kind of like social or like behavioral components to the patient. And sometimes, yeah, I made mistakes and I felt really terrible because I was like, I made this judgment about this person or I made an assumption that was completely wrong. And I just, yeah, I felt terrible that I could make someone else feel that way, make them feel as though they they were something other than they were and probably something less than what they are. Well, it, it can cut both ways. I mean, there are, in the world of developmental disabilities, there are conditions that we encounter where the kids are dysmorphic. They have facial features that are atypical. And because they're so different from the usual, we focus on those and we ignore the really good skills that the kids have. And sometimes they can be developmentally right on target, but we're going to assume they're not because of how they look. Mm. Okay. Or the other way around, there are, there are conditions, classic ones, you know, phenylketonuria, the kids with PKU look perfectly typical. Often they, by standards, they look, they're very attractive, okay? And, they can, and if they're not getting treated well, they can be spectacularly low functioning and have lots of disability and you'd look at them and never know it. And so, so people mm. make assumptions on the high side, assumptions on the low side, Getting to know a person is the name of the game, not making assumptions in, in any direction. I guess also I'm curious, because um, you kind of mentioned this whole like emotional process that you go through when you realize that, oh, something has gone that I didn't intend or I've made a mistake. In what ways do you cope with that when there may not be like such a ready solution at hand? Oh, well, I mean, sometimes, sometimes they're very painful. Sometimes we end up living with our mistakes, you know, and because the patient died of our mistake. I mean, that's, you know, it's, you know, uh, and that, that's, those are very hard to deal with. I mean, you have to find a way to forgive yourself or find some place to sequester it in your brain so it doesn't destroy you. All of us in healthcare make, we make mistakes. We're human. It's, 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 sometimes it's because we didn't ask for help. Sometimes it's because we didn't, we were, and, and, and again, happened when I was a resident, had a patient where I just did what I thought I was supposed to do in the order I th- was, thought I was supposed to do it. And had I had somebody said to me, don't worry about getting the cultures, give the kid the antibiotics. 
that kid might have lived mm. and a, a baby died because I was because I was doing it the right way, not the best way. And that I, I, I felt you know bad about that for my entire career, you know, but uh, these things happen, you know, and we have to we have to learn from them and not let it happen again. Yeah, it definitely it sounds like for you, part of your coping process, as you said, just recently is kind of learning from the mistake. And I also heard you say, we can't let those mistakes destroy us or kind of eat us up entirely from the inside. Because I mean, at that point, we are just incapable of offering anything to anyone else if that is basically all that we feel inside. And I guess I'm wondering, what does that look like for you? Like what like beliefs or practices or people help you hold those really hard things, like those things that it seems on some level like haunt you from your past and give them the space that they deserve so you can learn from them and yet also keep them in check so that they don't consume you entirely. One thing that I did was to take myself out of intensive care as, 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 as a focus in my life. I enjoyed it while I was doing it. And I realized that that, I, that was that was not a good fit for my for my personality, and so I chose and found myself working my way into a branch of medicine that's all about chronic management and you know helping helping people make the best you know of, mm. of their of their lives of their situations, and that works for me. I don't I, I I guess you know it's a personality difference. You know some people enjoy being high rollers and, you know, and, and playing the big bet and having the chance to make a big win, but also being, being forced to realize you're going to have a big loss sometimes. And, and for my personality, that was not the right fit. And so I, I gravitated toward a field where, where what I'm doing with my patients is always trying to help them get ever better. The times when I'm focusing on acute issues are relatively infrequent. I've been doing it long enough. I can get with it. When, when acute things come up, I know what to do and usually it works out okay. We find ourselves, I think, gravitating toward elements of healthcare if, if, we're, if we're working in the world of healthcare that fit those pieces of our personality. So it sounds kind of like the a bit of the ever better in your story was, yes, paying attention to both the mistakes you made, but also what they said, did it say that you just didn't know enough? And that doesn't sound like the case, but it, the, it seems like you interpreted that event as saying, oh, this may not be the best fit for me. Yeah, which I think those are two very different ways to interpret the same event. I think they are. And either way, it was, you know, learn from it and change my behavior in a way that's going to make it less likely that it's going to, that I'm going to fall into that same pitfall again some other mm-hmm. time. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's a great insight that you bring out of how sometimes the kind of mistakes or hardships that we face can be really formative in actually guiding us to a place where we do feel like we can do the best or that we can be ever better, so to say. I guess maybe to like change uh, tax a little bit, Mm -hmm. I'm curious, can you tell a story about a time when you helped someone else be ever better, um, whether it be, I don't know, maybe a patient or maybe a student, a medical student or resident that you may have been supervising. In that notion of, of ever better is that we're all on a vector of growth. 
we're not just static individuals. We're all growing and changing. Okay, and 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 part of the ever better notion is that we're going to try to move ourselves down that vector in a way that helps us grow in some way. Okay, in in my role as a clinician in the world of developmental disabilities, as a teacher of residents and medical students, the idea is in my mind we always learn best at the at that envelope at that bubble just beyond where we feel competent. So, so you take a person just up to the level of competence and push them a little bit farther and expands the bubble and it keep doing it, keep, keep expanding the bubble. I mean, that's why I, t- I say to families, no one's going to take a first grader who just learned addition and ask them to learn calculus. It's too big a jump, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. It's just, it does, it, it's, it, what you got to do is go from a jump addition to subtraction or multiplication, but you're expanding gradually, slowly at that level of success. And you're building on what you have and, and, and making it go further. So, you know, I, another, I guess, theme that comes out for me in my work with patients, in my work with trainees, is, is to start from where people are, are themselves feel competent and say, okay, this is where you are at the moment. How can I help you you know, expand your bubble a little bit. Start with what you know and, and add a little bit to it. Right? Add, add, add some incremental knowledge. Add an incremental skill if it's a kid. You know, the kid is you know, peeing in the toilet. Can we help him learn to poop in the toilet? I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, whatever it happens to be. What's the next natural thing that a person can grow to? I always sort of like to start from the assumption that I'm starting with what people are already doing or already know. And so I try to find out what people know. I'll start with students and say, okay, so you know all this stuff already, right? And and sometimes they'll say, huh? Okay, okay, <laughs> gotta back up, gotta back up. Okay, I'm 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 ahead of you there. Okay, let's back it up to the place where where we have a common base of knowledge and then grow mm-hmm. it from there. Okay, because if I started and I was presuming that people had a bunch of knowledge that they didn't have, they wouldn't, it would be a waste to talk. Okay. And it's the same thing with you know, with helping a family help, you know, help a kid grow and thrive. You know, it's, it's starting from what the parents know, starting from what the kid can do and helping it move from there. I guess I don't have a specific story about that because it's, it's, because it's a recurring theme in what I do. I sort of always am, mm. am, am, am checking to see where people are and where they want to go, doing that kind of base check to make sure that we have a good base on which to build, I guess. I'm kind of curious, do you know where you learned that or how you developed that? Because, I mean, just in my experience in the world, that is very much not what many people's perspective is. I often encounter perspectives of like, well, you should be doing here or you should do this or like, you just need to learn it. You're on your own, like deal with it. So how did you come to this kind of thought of like really, yes, starting where people are? I guess I, I had enough experiences where I was talking to people and they'd look at me like, huh? You know, and I and, <laughs> you know, I actually noticed that they were looking at me that way and said, oh, gee, I guess I better back it up a little bit. And over time, I realized it's better to start by asking the question than it is to just to have to do the have to do course corrections in the middle, you know, it, it, take, it takes less time in the long run. So I, I don't know. It's also because I sort of like assume that if I've got a question about something, so does everybody else, that I'm not the only one in the room with the question. How many times have you been in a lecture now when <laughs> you had no idea what the speaker was talking about? I mean, you know, hopefully not many. I hope we should be doing better teaching than that in, in, in our medical school. But if it's a particularly challenging topic, 
you know, and and the, the speaker brings me along from basic to medium to advanced over the mm-hmm. course of one lecture. I think that's a great teacher. I think that's a person who really has helped me grow my understanding. And I and and it's even better if the knowledge sticks. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's miraculous for the duration of the talk, that's pretty good. But if it's miraculous <laughs> and, and, and sticks beyond the duration of the talk, then it really matters. You know, mm-hmm. then then it's really then I really learned something. But you know, I mean, we all sit through talks that are highly technical and you know outside of our domain of interest. And I come away with, you know, okay, that was a cute cartoon, you know, but I guess, you know, <laughs> but I'm not sure I understood the point that the guy was making, you know? So I also had enough people early in my career sort of look at me gently, but seriously and say, you know, and, and give me the, and transmit the message that I really didn't know what I was talking about. Did I? <laughs> 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 this happens in pediatrics all the time when you're young, parents will look at you and say, you don't have any kids, do you? you know, okay. <laughs> and and uh, uh, yeah, you're right. I don't. You, know, you have to sort of like keep checking with people to make sure that that what you think you're what you think you're saying is that actually is right for them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I see. I see in that again this kind of theme. Else, other theme that seems to be going through a lot of what you say is the first step on some level is noticing. It's like noticing that people are going, huh? Right. It's it's noticing that you feel a strong emotion in a certain setting. It's noticing, like noticing that, you know, yeah, parents I mean, are saying something to you. Right. Well, that's mindfulness, isn't it? I mean, that's, you know, that that's what we're all, you know, striving to achieve, you know, to to be aware of what we're hearing and, and what it might represent, you know, and to not be focusing on, you know, whether whether our underwear is too tight or what, you know, or whether we're parked in a spot that might get a ticket, but to be actually focused on the patient, on the person we're there to serve and listening to what they have to tell us. I think that's sort of the ultimate name of the game. Could you speak a little bit to what parts of like your experience in medical practice make it more difficult for you to have that presence and mindfulness? Well, when I have to work fast, when there's a time crunch, it becomes much harder when you, it, it takes time for us to be able to pick up the vibes that, that are, are being sent to us and to be able to process them and think about what to do with them. And when we're being forced to move faster than we can process or that, that the patient can process, what ends up happening is we inevitably fall into templates and we fall into the five questions that people decided were most important you know, somebody else decided were most important that maybe the least important questions for this particular person. And that's when it is frustrating. I'm very fortunate in my specialty because we're able to book really long visits for people. And, and one of the other things I say to students and residents when they sit with me is I said, you could do what I'm doing if you have this much time. I mean, there's nothing I'm doing that you couldn't, there's not a single question I'm asking that you couldn't ask if you had the time to, to get at them all. But most people are much more rushed than that. And so, so if I'm in clinic and somebody arrives really late, you know, mm-hmm. for a visit, but they drove a really long way and I want to try to serve them, but I know I can't serve them the way I really ought to. And I'm busy trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to do this in the little bit of time I've got available to make it worth their long drive to see me? And those are the times when I'm not being as mindful about them but being more mindful about the other patients backing up and getting angry. Uh, That's when 
it doesn't work well for me. But if I have the time I'm supposed to have, I'm golden. I, 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 I can get it. I can get it done in that amount of time generally. Yeah, that I mean, yeah, that certainly is a luxury. It sounds like to have that time. Oh. I cannot tell you how many people who looked at me when I told them I was going to medical school and they were kind of like, oh, I, man, I always hate going to see my doctor because you only have like 10 minutes and they ask you all these questions and you don't even get to say anything. And then you're out the door before you know what's happening. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's very often the case, but we actually give people time to talk themselves out. Any more questions? Gee, I guess not. You know, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think maybe my next part I would like to look at is kind of from the other side of, you know, we've talked a lot about how, you know, how you try and personally be ever better and how you try and pass that on to other people, whether it be, you know, uh, residents, fellows or patients. Can you tell me a story about a time when a patient taught you something? I do a lot of shtick. With, with kids. I goof around a lot. I want them to get comfortable with me and I, I, I play a lot. Okay. And often kids with developmental disabilities are, are scared. You know, that it's a scary med- medical office, is a scary place. They don't want to be there. I'm unfamiliar to them and I want them to get comfortable. I had a kid who was about four years old, had autism and was always brought in by his father, who was a very distinguished, somewhat older guy who was very, very courtly kind of man, very, very nice. And so I'm talking to him while I'm playing with the kid. Okay. My goal was to get the kid engaged with me a little bit, but he's a scared four-year-old with autism. And I was, I thought, so I think to myself, okay, well, maybe if I rock with him. And so I took his hand and started rocking back and forth. Okay. Just rocking back and forth. He's in his chair. I'm in my chair. And my hope was to increase the amplitude of the rocking in a way that would eventually get him sort of like shifted over into my lap. Ah. Okay. Okay. This is the goal. I'm increasing the amplitude of the rocking back and forth, back and forth. While I'm talking to the father, dad's over there. I'm talking to him, increasing the amplitude of of the rocking, periodically looking at the kid who's Notice who's not upset by the rocking, but he's not like my best buddy yet. (laughs) And as I'm increasing the amplitude of the rocking, I sort of like went up a little bit out of my chair to increase the amplitude. Okay. Hoping to get him out of his chair. And at one point I go up out of my chair and my chair rolls away behind me. (laughs) At which point I go down backwards. I'm hit. I'm I'm headed for the floor. Uh I'm holding the kid's hands in mine. And I see him coming over the top, coming down. <laughs> and, and this is one of those moments when the whole world moves into slow motion. And, and, I, and in my head, in slow motion, what I'm hearing is lawsuit. And the kid lands on my chest. And still in slow motion, he's crying. And through really? his cries, I can hear the father in slow motion saying, Dr. Sulkus, are you all right? Said, no lawsuit. I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and put the kid back in the chair, pat him in. Okay. okay. We'll, just, we'll just, we won't do that. <laughs> Point is that the strategies that you think are going to work are not always going to work. You, know, you need to take your time, be patient, but also don't, don't get stuck on a specific strategy. It may, it may backfire on you. <laughs> No, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that story. <laughs> My next question is, 
Can you think of any really like unexpected teachers that you've encountered in your life who have imparted some sort of wisdom or help to you? Oh, well, as I say, you know, parents teach me stuff all the time. And, you know, my, my, my expectation going into a clinical visit is that I'm going to be the teacher and I'm going to impart some wisdom to them. But, you know, really often they come back and say, you know, that I've, I've tried that. It doesn't work. Okay. And I say, well, did you try it this way? And it's, yeah, we tried it that way too. And we, but so families teach me regularly about the unique features of their kids. Okay. I got one. When I was first out of fellowship and was working in a state institution, people who were pretty low functioning. Okay. I had kids, I had adults. And one day I walked past this adult patient of mine who was a guy in his twenties. And I went past him. And I noticed that his fingernails really were long and it wasn't a problem particularly, but he needed to have his nails clipped. Okay. You know, and so I said, come on with me. We're going to go back. And, and we, I, I had him come with me and we went, he was a nonverbal guy. Okay. And I take him back into the nurse's area where there's a nail clipper. It's just a regular old nail clipper. Oh. And, I, and I take his hand and, and I'm going toward it with a nail clipper. And as I go toward him with the nail clipper, he's going, <laughs> okay. And, Okay. And he just wouldn't let me get more than about four inches from his, from any nail. <gasps> and he's just pulling away. He's big enough and strong enough. I, I can't force. I didn't want to force it. There was no point in forcing it. It was just uh. a nail clipper. But after a minute or two of this, finally it occurred to me. And I said, here, you take the nail clipper. And he took the nail clipper and did it himself. <laughs> what he taught me was check. Don't assume a person can't do something. Assume, you know, okay. See if a person needs help with something before you just assume it. You know, you got to do it. And it was like, so here was a here was a nonverbal guy who taught me a really important lesson that has stuck with me. I I, I don't I check with people to see what what they can do before I make assumptions. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit it right on the head in terms of in the medical profession, especially as physicians, or at least for me, future physician, we do have this sense, or at least we're told like, well, we're the one who should come in with the answers and come in with the information to impart to people. But yeah, that's a really beautiful story of kind of things moving the other direction. Along that same theme, theme that we were talking about earlier, you know, people come in to see us in our subspecialty looking for diagnosis. Mm. And what I've learned to do is to say to them early on in the visit, okay, you've probably done some reading. You've been thinking about this. What diagnosis or diagnoses are you worried it might be? You're not going to put an idea in my head by bringing it up. If you don't tell me, it may never occur to me to, uh -huh. that, that it was a, that it was a worry for you. And we're going to get all the way to the end. And I may never mention the thing that was most worrying you. Mm. So tell me what it is up front. And then I can help answer that question most effectively. People are kind of surprised. They say, well, no, you're the doctor. You're supposed to tell me what I've got. Mm. And I say, well, I'll do that. You know, I, I'm happy. I'm, that, that's still my job, but I'll serve you a lot better if I find out what you, what the question, what you really want to get answered. Otherwise you get all the way to the end and you haven't brought up the thing that they were really worried about. And they're, and you're about to walk out the door and say, wait, you didn't answer my most important question, you know, and then you got to go back in and talk for another 20 minutes so you don't get on to the next patient. So okay, it's another example of ask, you know, find out what people really want up front and it, it'll help. That seems like a really amazing combination of both this kind of extended mindfulness of not just being mindful of what you're thinking about, but of after seeing enough patients being like, oh, this is probably something that's in their mind, 
combined with... Well, well, that too. I mean, there are things that people... So, so there are diagnoses that people are worried mm. about. And then there's the whole thing about telling somebody that, and again, this is in my, in, in, in my field in particular, mm-hmm. telling families, you didn't cause it, you couldn't have prevented it. Mm. You got nothing to feel guilty about. So don't feel guilty. You're being a good parent, you know, and people say, oh, how'd you know I was worried about this? Everybody, that's easy. <laughs> you, 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 know, <laughs> you have to acknowledge that people might be worried, you know, and that one is, so, that one's actually much more painful to, to mm. bring up for a parent that they're worried about whether they're being a good parent or whether they caused a problem. Sometimes they say, well, I wasn't worried about that. I said, well, good. I'm glad you weren't. <laughs> but you know, often enough they are that it's important to, for us to alleviate guilt when we can. Uh, yeah. That really strikes me because I, um, a few of my friends are already, you know, married and parents and something I do hear them worry about a lot is, Oh, well, I'm really worried that someone else is going to think that I'm not a good parent or that I'm worried that I'm not living up to like, the expectations of what is a quote unquote good parent. Right. I'm kind of curious, where did you kind of learn to have that conversation? Because that, that strikes me as something that I would probably never learn in medical school. <laughs> I guess I probably learned it in fellowship when people would kind of you know look at me at the end of the visit. And I sort of got the vibe that they were worried about whether you know, whether they were somehow responsible in some way. And I mm. sort of like, I don't remember anybody specifically saying, you know, saying, should I feel guilty or not? You know, mm. it's one that we, and as individuals, individual patients need to know, you know, I mean, there's so much we can do to ourselves that we need to, that we can go back and regret. We ate the wrong foods. Mm. We, we engaged in the wrong activities. We didn't do enough of something. We did too much of something else, you know? So every time I go to the doctor as a patient, I'm waiting to be scolded about something, you know, that I'm screwing up in my life that's causing me health problems. And if I escape without that, you know, then I figure it was a pretty good visit, you know? Uh, and so, so we're always worried that our doctors are judging us in some way. And usually we're not, you know, judging people in those ways, but everybody worries about it. You may not be old enough to have to be worried about what your doctor is going to say to you yet, but you get into the second half of your life, and every doctor's visit is is, is a report card. You know? <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but that does make a lot of sense, especially considering, uh, at least in our culture, that there is a lot of moral value assigned to health. Like good people are healthy. And well, if you, you know, are overweight or if your blood, you know, blood labs are off or anything else, it's like, oh, you must be insert like moral judgment here. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. So whether it's, you know, whether it's the parent's fault for not doing something or feeding the kid the wrong food or not giving them, not giving them enough exercise, giving them too much exercise, who knows? But parents feel responsible for their kids. We as adults feel responsible for ourselves, you know. I keep trying to t- get my wife to feel responsible for my health, but she won't do it. <laughs> uh, just kind of standing in awe a little bit of kind of what you bring up is this sense that we as physicians, even though our training is so much in the physical and in kind of the behavioral or the material part of life, that we do have these chances to un- unyoke people of this guilt that they are like hanging and holding on to. And I cannot think of things more healing in my life, at least than times when people have released me from guilt that I've been holding on to. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
it's why confession it was such a big part of certain religions. You know, I mean, it's very powerful to be absolved. The ever better notion is to give it a try if you can, if, if, if circumstances allow, allow us to give things a try without hurting anybody or ourselves. Help can come in terms of guidance and education, or it can come in, in, in terms of someone taking over and just doing the job that we were not ready to do in that moment. Okay. Uh, one is a great, the latter is a great relief. The other is a growth experience. And I think there are times for both of those. You know, mm. I remember having supervisors when I was a pediatric resident who were not good supervisors, who would, in, who would say, I'll take over here instead of helping me to handle it. And they left me feeling cruddy about myself you know, as opposed to helping me learn. You know, I had very little respect for those, those supervisors because I understood that they were putting patient well-being first, but there were moments when that wasn't, you know, whether patient well-being wasn't going to suffer if they helped me do my, if, if they, they, they gave me some guidance in how to do it. You know, mm-hmm. it taught me to assess the situation when I was in a supervisory mode, helped me to, to, to do better what I was trying to learn to do. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I think that's all for my questions. Yeah, do you have any any uh, last thoughts you would like to share? No, it's been fun. Thank you. Thanks to Dr. Sulkis for sharing his story with us. Opening and closing music is composed by Amanda Chow. Dr. Eric Larson is my mentor and advisor. When I told Dr. Larson I got this project approved, he got so excited. No lawsuit. I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> If you have any topics you would like to hear on the podcast, please email lspodcastproject at gmail.com. That's just an L and just an S, no periods. Thanks for listening and helping to build this community of mutual support, trust, and care.